What are you working on right now? Can you picture yourself completing the task? Or are you unsure about the next move? In this episode, we continue the story of Tal Stokes as he accepts the assignment to lead the first Jamaican bobsled team to the 88 Olympics in Calgary. We're exploring this practice of visualization in athletics, in business, and in life. This is a podcast about summiting B2B marketing and the account-based mindset. This is Reach. We're so glad to have you with us today. And as usual, my name's Hiromi. And with me, I have CEO and agency founder, Jason Thorgerson. Hi. Glad to have you all. And Chief Creative Officer, Garrett Krinsky. Nice to be here. This story goes really deep to me and Garrett's roots. Yeah. <laughs> when people ask you where you're from, oftentimes, especially, you know, in the, in the years surrounding 1988, oh, where, where, where do you live? Oh, I live in Calgary. Do you remember the Olympics? Do you remember cool runnings? You know, so it's oh, like really? wow. a point of reference and there's pieces of the city in that movie. And, you know, so for people listening, Garrett, of course, is, I shouldn't say, of course, Garrett is from if Canada, you can't tell lives already, in Canada. He's on the, the north side obviously, of the continent. Obviously, obviously he's from Canada. <laughs> but no, context. Like, uh, we moved to Calgary in 1989. So imagine the whole Albertan biosphere had had this event and people were either absolutely infatuated with the whole Olympic ideal and they were still riding that high or they were completely tired of it. So literally individual city dwellers were talking about this story when I was a kid. Really? Right. That's so it's amazing. like, I remember some of it, but it didn't stick. And then, you know, 93 cool runnings comes out and it's like, I live in this city. I could visit this bobsleigh track. And then it, that became the story after that. What does Olympic fatigue look like? I think it looks similar to a lot of um, hotcakes at the Calgary stampede. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine people who live in Anaheim, they're probably half the people uh, love Disneyland because of yes. the opportunities it brings because of the tourists it, it it helps their business. And then half the people probably hate Disneyland, right? So this event with these stories in it either gave people this remarkable hope and, and optimism and opportunity or it absolutely derailed their normal life. I could see that. You know, I'm trying to figure out when we moved to Calgary, like maybe 87. But it's interesting. Wow, so you, like you, you went through it. Well, as a kid, I don't really recall much about the Olympics or, I, you know, recall the movie. And definitely as a teenager that was into snowboarding from 14 to 18 at the Calgary Olympic Park, you could see mm -hmm. bobsledders coming down the track, which is such an awesome experience. I remember as a teen snowboarding there and you ride the chairlift and you could see the whole bobsled track, lose track. And then later they had a thing where in the summer you could ride, I don't know if it was a bobsled or like a luge similar thing on wheels that would go down this track without the ice on it and you could experience the thrill of of going in this mm. olympic venue it was built for the olympics that is cool so this was the backdrop for the jamaican bobsled team's olympic aspirations but as tal describes there was a lot of ground to cover in a very short period of time before they could be ready to compete So the trials in Jamaica and the selection were conducted by some U.S. bobsled athletes who had come down for a vacation and 
to lend their expertise. So they set up the trials and gave their thoughts on the athletes. Of the team that was eventually selected, three of us were from the military. I was the ranking officer. Another soldier was Devon Harris, who had a similar background to mine, an officer and attendant Sandhurst. The other one was Michael White, the um, 100-meter champion. Then we had Freddie Powell and Caswell Allen, two civilians. Freddie Powell was chosen for his marketing appeal. He read about the trials in the newspaper, got on his scooter and rode three hours into Kingston to attend the trials in his street shoes. Caswell Allen was a, was a high school athlete at the time. So that was the team that was selected to travel and gain the first experience of bobsleigh. All right, so this is a marketing podcast. Let's talk marketing for just a second. This should sound kind of familiar, right? Let's say we're in a meeting and we start naming fictional characters and describing their motivations and their attributes. Uh, there's an enigmatic guy from Jamaica. He rides a scooter and he wears street shoes. Another character is in the military. He's the 100-meter champion and he's driven by competition. You know, marketers create character studies like this, right? Why do they do that? Yeah, instead of just saying, I'm going to address everyone in the market, it helps you to go a step deeper, take your Venn diagrams and hopefully get them more overlapping between messaging and who your audience is. Explain that a little bit. So a persona, it's like a character study, right? So before you play a character in the school play, you know, what are my motivations and, and, and where, where did I come from? And that's persona, right? Mm-hmm. Then the journey map is, okay, now I'm talking about you doing something, you experiencing a problem, you climbing a mountain. So now with all of that background information of what makes you you, persona, now you go on a journey and all that background information informs me about what choices you will make on that journey. And how does that help you as a marketer? Obviously, this fictional person's not benefiting. How are you benefiting? It's a tool for you to help make decisions, right? It helps you make a very calculated assumption that now my messaging will resonate as opposed to throwing it on a wall and whatever sticks, we just go with that. Yeah, yeah the intention is to understand the people, the behaviors behind the people. We're trying to understand what's going to connect with them. So whether you're in B2C or you're B2B, you're marketing to many or you're marketing to few, trying to get in their, their mind space. What is going to now connect to the individuals that, that we're seeking to reach? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because in our last episode, Tal taught us about how he was using visualization to help him to develop his athletic abilities. And as you're describing, it kind of sounds like marketers are using tools on a regular basis with a similar goal. We're doing this, right? And in, in certain respects, visualizing our customers and, you know, what are some of their concerns and what are some of their challenges and, you know, how can I address these and how I address them? Personas, journey maps, empathy maps, all these things are beneficial tools to helping us start the visualization. We were, of course, concerned about the potential dangers. But we were at our core, a military team. We knew we had a job to do and we set about doing it. We never held back at any point, which was maybe imprudent, but that was the, the spirit that we took into Bobsley and into the Olympic Games. 
We traveled to Lake Placid in upstate New York, where we met our coach for the first time, Howard Siler. And he assessed us and did in fact take us down to the ice hockey ring. And we slid around on that for a while, just to get an impression of ice. And then back home, where we trained on a push sled, which we had built. Uh, metal sled on wheels. We practice the start and our timing on this push sled in front of the airwing hangar in Upper Cap, main military base in Kingston, Jamaica. So in October, we went to Canada to learn to slide. We walked up to the track the first day there and stood behind a big curve and for the first time heard a bobsleigh going through there, through that curve. And it really sounded like a fighter jet that had just put on the afterburners. And it went rumbling by, gone in a flash. That was our first real-life experience, and it got the adrenaline going. In the movie, in Cool Runnings, you know, they have this scene of them first going on ice, right? And it's actually hilarious. But teaching my kids to skate and watching them on ice for the first time, it's like that scene in Bambi, right, where the... Yeah, <laughs> the baby deer is on the ice and it's like just hearing him think about, you know, the timeline here, October 1987 and the Olympics were in February 1988 and they're first being introduced to the surface of ice. Like it's it's actually remarkable how much they had to learn and take in and apply to what they were about to do in such a short period of time. Yep. I'd heard this other interview that Devin Harris did and he was saying, yeah, the ice was something we we're not familiar with. But he's like, there's only 16 tracks worldwide at this time. And now mm-hmm. there might be more, but back then, Japan, France, Norway, all those countries didn't have a track. So if they wanted to contend, they had to travel to one of those 16 tracks to practice. So when you're not on one of those tracks, what do you do? You you run, you lift weights, you do other things like that to, to prepare yourself. And he's like, those are things that any Jamaican does all the time. So he's like, you know, aside from the ice, we had just as good a chance as anyone else to do this thing. I think the thing that struck me about this story, though, is just personally, I'm always in this mode and we have this discussion weekly about we've never done this before. And this activation be done in this mode. Oh, can this tactic be applied in in this tech? And so I resonate with this story like the whole country had never been involved in the Winter Olympics And so now they put this idea together and for all intents and purposes, it was absolutely a crazy idea. Yeah. But when you start to break it down, it all makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? Like the start was really important. So they had athletes, they needed a driver. So they got someone who flew a helicopter and, and was a pilot, you know, and it's like they had these rich businessmen who were backing them and they had, you know, and it's like the trepidation you might have even personally about trying something new, going down a path you've never been down before and not give up before you try. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good point. In bobsleigh, the approach to learning is the same as in flying. We'd learned that when you pull left, the sled will go left, you pull right, the sled will go right, the places you shouldn't pull. And you start out slow. And in the case of a bobsleigh low, there are three or four starts on every bobsleigh run. And the junior start usually is the lowest one with only a few corners coming after that. So we started at the junior start, got a feel for the sled and kept moving up the track until finally the coaches felt we were prepared to go from the top. 
So we came to the top of the bobsleigh run and fairly comfortable. The one thing that I wasn't prepared for is the extra speed and the, the sheer level of violence from being in a bobsleigh from the top. And so I jumped in with my helmet comfortably on my head, not too tight, and went off. And by corner four, the helmet had risen up over my eyes. I, I didn't see a thing for the rest of the trip. And we got to the bottom on all four runners. I was thinking, how hard could this be? Dudley Stokes, you're the captain of this team. First of all, tell us, tell us what is exciting about this? <laughs> so to discover the real excitement in Bob's game, you'd have to actually do it. Next best thing is to stand by the track and actually watch the bombs go down. And the worst option is to watch it on TV because somehow TV doesn't capture the speed and the, um, the violence of the sport. It's very fast and it's a, a very rough sport. And if you like that sort of thing, uh, it's good for you. It's good for the adrenaline pump. So we learn it's better to do your helmet up really tightly so it stays on your head when you start being thrown about. Yeah, this feels like a turning point in his understanding of visualization. Mm -hmm. Didn't we just hear in, in our last episode from Dr. Frank Niles about a study in the University of Chicago where basketball players who visualized and did no practicing did almost as well as players who physically practiced? We know that Tal had done tons of visualization before this event. Why is it that his first interaction with his bobsled is a big surprise? Because well, it's I would the real say, thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like th there's, no, there's no substitute for the real thing. Like that's probably, as we're discovering a little bit of maybe the challenges that marketers may face in doing this is how close do they get to the real person? The persona stuff helps us to imagine the person. But here's a difference too, is that in, in Tal's case of sliding down a track, the track is the exact same, mm -hmm. you know? So as they go through it, the visualization is going to get better and better and better. But as we think through individuals, are they exactly the same? Is any two individuals exactly the same? Like this is a challenge, right? It's so, of course, the Nielsen-Norman group is an authority on user experience design. And Sarah Gibbons is one of their designers. She does this video series and she talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is the acknowledgement of the suffering of others. Sympathy is often the reaction in the form of sorrow or pity to the hardship or plight of another person. In UX, sympathy is limited to acknowledging that users are going through something difficult, say a scenario, task, or journey. Empathy, on the other hand, is the ability to fully understand, mirror, and then share another person's expression, needs, and motivations. In UX, empathy enables us to understand not only our users' immediate frustrations, but also there are hopes, fears, abilities, limitations, reasonings, and goals. Yeah, she talks about a blind person, right? Yeah, developing yeah. for blind people. So like blindfolding and, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's where it's empathy mapping we talk about a lot. Really goes beyond recognizing pain and now understanding why someone is in pain what they're trying to do to correct it, and then developing the process around solving for that. Right. So what you're kind of saying is that visualization is really only valuable when it's based in reality then, right? And in Tal's case, he had no real experience to base his previous visualizations on. This was his first experience with a bobsled. 
So I looked up a few quick facts about bobsleigh on the internet so it can help us to visualize what he's being subjected to. So apparently bobsled tracks are just under a mile typically, and they have at least 15 curves in them. They have these different entry points for training purposes. And that's what he's talking about when he says low, they can be inserted into the track at different points, obviously increasing difficulty as you go up. These sleds have like an open back. They're mounted on four runners and the front set of runners are steered by pulling on these ropes by the driver. And as these sleds go down that track, they can reach up to 90 miles per hour. And around some of these tighter corners, the gravitational force on the riders is five times what you would experience just standing in a normal environment. That's a lot to adjust to. But you can be sure his visualization changed from that point forward. His process had to change at that point forward because now he had new information that was very real. Now he can picture way more. Yeah. So I think that's where for us as marketers, the rigidity of personas can be damaging after a certain point, right? Where it's like, oh, this personal experience doesn't necessarily align with what this theoretical experience in the persona or the journey map is telling me. So am I so rigid that I can't adapt? Yeah. In Talking to Strangers, the newest Malcolm Gladwell book, he talks about how bad we are at guessing what other people are thinking. We give ourselves credit for being maybe a good judge of character, being able to tell when people are lying, for example. But he makes the point, people will surprise you all the time. Studies show we're only 54% accurate at knowing when someone's lying to them. They cited this example of how these bail judges insisted on looking into people's eyes when they were making their judgments. Bail judges, they have to decide whether someone's a flight risk or not. but in a 2017 study by a Harvard economist, they pitted these bail judges against AI. The defendants that the judges gave bail were 25% more likely to go out and commit another crime than those that the computer would have chosen. So we're not that good at guessing. There's room for improvement, right? And I think if that judge knew that person, maybe that rate would change. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? It's not that we can't have a preconception about a matter, but it, we have to let it change. Now, up to this point, George Fitch and William Maloney were financing this whole venture from their own resources. But we flew into Calgary on October 17, 1987, which is a day that has since gone down as Black Monday, the biggest crash on the stock market to that day. October 19, 1987, Black Monday. The stock market drops a bomb by falling more than 500 points, and the shockwaves hit. When we left Dallas, George Fitch was a millionaire, and by the time we landed in Calgary, he was broke. So the money just wasn't there for us to continue as we did before. We really cut expenses, went from four rooms down to one, started getting very comfortable together. We sold t-shirts as a way of raising money to pay our bills. And you quite literally could see the quality of your supper as you went through the day and watching how t-shirt and sweatshirt sales moved. Perhaps our biggest customers were other bobsleigh athletes on the track, people coming up to see us. Yeah, if Tal were to map out his own journey, certainly selling t-shirts would not have been on that map. It ended up being a very important part of him being able to eat 
<laughs> and sustain this this journey for him, but he would have never put that on the map. And it, it makes us think about another thing that Dr. Frank Niles brought up when he talked about the two different types of visualization. Visualization really has two different components. One is what I call outcome visualization, and the other is process visualization. Outcome visualization gives us the direction to focus upon, keeps us motivated and moving in a particular direction. Think about running a marathon. Outcome visualization is envisioning finishing the race in a certain amount of time, the time that you want to finish. Process visualization, on the other hand, is when we visualize the different steps we have to go through in order to get to the ultimate outcome. So if we're envisioning ourselves wanting to win the race or cross the finish line, as it were, we know that there's going to be different points throughout the race when we're going to hit the wall when the race gets really difficult. So we start envisioning ourselves at mile five, at mile six, at mile 10, at mile 16 and 18, really understanding and feeling in ourselves what we're going to have at that time. So when we experience those feelings, we've already experienced them in our mind and allows us to persevere through. And so what the research shows that process visualization is incredibly important for us to achieve our ultimate outcome. Right. So outcome being more understanding the goal, where we want to be process, we envision what we feel or think it's going to be, but are we willing to change that visualization when we get new insight, you know, being fluid, you know, that would be a challenge for us as individuals, as marketers, as business people. Are we willing to pivot and change our positioning based on new information? In my mind, this goes to the philosophy of developing that process. That's maybe a little bit of a new skill to learn of being in a flexible mindset with regard to tactics or messaging or strategy. You know, there might be new tech to leverage. There might be new ways of thinking. There might allow for fluidity in the journey. Yes, which is something that Tal definitely needed moving forward. The cost even grew as the International Federation kept setting different standards for us to meet. We had to travel and race in Europe. One of the directors of the company is PC Harris, uh, who was in on the bobsleigh program from the start. He designed the t-shirt, sweatshirt, uh, emblems and so on, and uh, wrote a song and actually put out a record about the bobsleigh finally qualified for the Olympics at a World Cup race in Eagles in Austria late in December. And that news came out in conjunction with a small article in Time magazine. But that really blew up our profile in Jamaica and saved the day. The Jamaica Tourist Board stepped in, bailed us out on the money front, and we were going to the Olympic Games. We went into a pre-Olympic training camp in Lake Placid, New York, which was one of the toughest tracks in the world. And we started driving the two, practicing, practicing with an eye on the Olympics starting one month later. We were prepared for two two-man teams with myself and Michael White, Sammy Clayton and Devon Harris. But then one night, there was a knock on my door and the other driver, Sammy Clayton, 
was there and he said to me that he's done, he's leaving. He never said why. I know we were all having a very hard time, very rough track. Sammy left and that was the last I saw of him. So we were left there with one driver and uh, an Olympic entry, which would be one two-man team. The other athletes came to me and said, you know, we've all been working hard. I will we'll have a chance to compete in the Olympics, given that we now only have one driver, unless we do the four-man. That called George up. And he said, well, I'll see if I can arrange a four-man for you. And he did. So we had one. We went to training in Lake Placid. Lake Placid doesn't have many starts, so we had to start from halfway up, which is still plenty of speed. And we started on an afternoon when it was minus 20, and I must have done 20, 30 runs from the half that afternoon in minus 20. Crew were in tears by the, the time we finished, but I felt I had a feel for the four-man sled. So we turned up in Calgary for the Olympic Games, not knowing if we were going to be allowed into the four-man race because we technically had not qualified a four-man sled. But George worked his magic and we were accepted in the race. And just one small problem, we did not have a sled. So George went out and worked more magic and eventually found a sled. Calgary, 1988. The Jamaicans are, to say the least, an oddity. They didn't even have a sled for the four-man event until they got lucky and found an old one someone had forgotten about in a storage room on the mountain. Wasn't the best, found it in the basement, the refrigeration unit, but it was a four-man sled. We were mentally exhausted, but really looking forward to the four-man. We got the sled in reasonable shape and we started sliding by sitting in on the first day. In the meantime, we spent the afternoon on the push track, practicing to push and to load. Now, my brother, Chris, who was at the University of Idaho, eight hours south of Calgary. Of course, I'd come to the Olympic Games as a spectator. And he came in time to see the two-man race. And then he was around now for four-man training. So he was standing by the push track. We were practicing and Caswell Allen slips, falls off the sled, sprains his ankle. He can't go. Howard Siler, the coach, having been earlier introduced to my brother, turns to George Fitch and said, my only question is why isn't he on the sled? George Fitch looked at Howard, he looked at Chris, he looked at me and he said, well, why isn't he on the sled? And drove to Calgary to watch his brother. I had no idea in my head at the, at the time that by the end of the week I'd been in an Olympic race. This was about 3 p.m. on an afternoon, the second week in the Olympic Games. Accreditation had closed on December 31st. But by 6 p.m., my brother and I were roommates in the Olympic Village, and he was fully accredited as an athlete and about to become an Olympian and a bobsleigh athlete. Don't stand around a bobsled track if you don't want to get in the bobsled, right? Like oh, That is good advice. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder about that process, though, right? Isn't that interesting? We're talking about competing on the most elite level in the world. Sure. In five months, am I right? Five months from even knowing what a bobsled is to competing in the Olympics. It's that drastic, right? That's what that's the timeline we're talking about. And then within the last two weeks, 
completely changing the whole format of the sport, the two man to the four man, like a completely different sleigh. And then when, when did his brother hop in there? It was the first day of the four man race. So it was, it was like 20th of February. Days. I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Like, like you said, even just experiencing ice, I mean, never experienced ice before. Never experienced Lycra suits mm -hmm. 20 degrees below centigrade. Yeah. <laughs> so again, even Tao was saying that they might very well come in last, but where they had come from and where they got to in 1988 is remarkable. Yeah. Now, certainly going into this race into the four-man, there was never a question of us winning a medal and we didn't entertain that sort of fantasy, but we, we did want to acquit ourselves to put on our best effort, whatever that may be, might well be last, but we needed to be satisfied with ourselves that we had done things to the best of our ability, given the circumstances, notwithstanding the five months, notwithstanding starting in the four-man two weeks before the Olympics, notwithstanding having a crew that really didn't know how to get into the sled. I'd never known failure in a real way in my life, but always been a high flyer generally successful at whatever I did. And I brought this attitude into the Olympic Games. And, you know, your first experience of failure is, is like a footballer's first experience of a serious injury. It changes you mentally. And to come back requires a, a particular mental approach. And that's what I had to do after the 1988 Games. The first day of the four-man race was a circus where I had trouble loading into the sled. My push bar failed to stay up on the first push and it collapsed and I fell headfirst into the sled. Somehow I got around into a driving position. Well, it was chaos and we watched it that night and had a critique, exchanged some words and we set out to do better the following day. When we knew we would be early in the order off the hill, it would be fast ice and so this was the day. Well, I woke up that morning with a temperature of 102 degrees as I caught the bug that goes through pretty much every Olympic Games. But it was the practice in those days to go out to the track before a race, walking in the track, looking at the curves, looking at the track condition. It's more about getting in the right mindset. And while doing that, I slipped and fell and broke my collarbone. Green stick fracture. So I got to the top, sick, Temperature, headache, broken collarbone. British physio fixed me up with some magic spray, which deadened the pain, but I don't know that it did much good for my collarbone. Then we got to the start and we were waiting to go for our turn. And George Fitch said to me, your coach is gone. And I said, what? He said, yes, your coach left. He had to go back to work. He flew out this morning. So this was Howard Tyler, who is the person in whom I had invested a lot of my own confidence and had been at the start with me for all the starts I'd been to up to this point. So hearing that he was gone was a bit unnerving. Anyway, we pulled it together, got out there. We actually had the, the seventh fastest start of the race that day, largely as a consequence of my brother coming onto the slip. Let's see if they can do it a little better today. Just about 5.32, seventh fastest. But we got in slightly better in terms of getting in the sled. But sitting in the sled was chaotic and people were all over each other, including over me. 
And so I, I found it difficult to steer from the start. We were going very quickly. I was in a very uncomfortable position. And I just got further and further behind the sled until we came to a big 270-degree curve called the Chrysler. We started doing what's called a porpoise, going up and down, up and down as we missed the, the steering points in the curve. He's getting one or two rather untidy high points on these bends. Much harder to drive these four-man sleds. And eventually we were going up as the curve ended and over we went. Oh, and he's on there, he's over! Oh, dear me! Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's a bad crash, I'm afraid. As we were climbing on the end of that curve, the Chrysler, and I knew we were going over. And the thought in my head was, oh no, not in the Olympics, before a billion eyeballs. And then I hit my head really hard. Literally saw stars. A life flashed before my eyes. I just remember, you know, okay, so this doesn't feel too right. And a little, little bang, but I'm not sure. I, do, I don't know that I've turned over. Until now I started to smell my helmet, which is fiberglass burning on the ice, which is something that stays with you for, for many years afterwards. The drill when you're a bobsled driver in a crash is to pull yourself under the cowl, which is relatively safe. You have something around you all the way and then it leaves space for the rest of the crew. But we were so badly packed in the sled and then once we went over, everybody moved even further down and I was pressed up against the cowl and I could not get my head under. And we went through two curves like that, hit my head really hard again. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to get under the cold, and so I stopped. I stopped trying. It was useless, so I just relaxed. Things became really quiet, at least in my mind. I sat there and watched the ice go by. Flash of white. And then I started thinking to myself, well, this is not right. This is not where we should be. This was just a disaster. How did I get here? How are we going to make this different? And I, I remembered my mom making her list. Started figuring it out in my mind. Yeah, we need the resources, the money on ice, the resources, the money, the equipment. I just started visualizing and working through it. So for the first 10 seconds of the crash was trying to figure out how to survive and realizing that it wasn't going to happen. And the final 18 seconds was really spent mapping out what would turn out to be the next nine years of my life. Afterwards, when we were in the ambulance being checked, I shared the future with my brother and what I needed him to do. And we got going on that plan right after the crash. This was my first experience of failure or a real, real setback in life. And I was determined that this moment would not define me. I am going to find out what is necessary to become good at this. And I'm going to become good. I had my head down and all I, all I could hear was my spikes crunching through the ice. I mean, every step I was like, amplified in my brain and then I started to hear this cheering and I lift up my head a little bit. We walked sort of right through the finish and so on but, then, but the crowd started cheering and waving so you know the guy started cheering and waving back.
It's amazing how during that crash, his outcome-based visualization was untouched, but his process was already starting to change. That quote that the crash lasted 28 seconds, the first 10 seconds were realizing that his current process was falling apart and the last 18 was just mapping out the new one. And he was going through all those thoughts as his head is being dragged on the ice. And what I think is so interesting is in this moment, he's visualizing the process of getting to the next nine years of his life, the whole trajectory of this endeavor over and above that one minute of driving the bobsled. And so it's interesting to see visualization on a micro and macro level that he's using in different ways. There's something interesting in this book called Range by journalist David Epstein. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world. In terms of visualization on basketball or any athletic endeavor like chess, like golf, there's known quantifiable things that you can visualize in terms of getting better in your performance. And according to a psychologist, Robin Hogarth, these are learning environments where we know all the elements. And then they call the areas where we don't know all the elements wicked learning environments. And I was thinking like in the case of Tal in crashing and starting to visualize and adjust his process and how he can get to that same outcome, all the training and skills that he had developed up to that point were outside of this discipline, outside of bobsled. But that desire to get to the outcome that he already was starting to imagine, how can we perform at a better level? That helped him to be able to formalize his path forward. He looked at this as a major failure. But he didn't want that failure to define him. He already started working on visualizing how to get better at what he was doing. Yeah, it's such a shame that for many, this is where Tal's story ends. As someone who crashed at the 1988 Olympics. The truth is, though, that this was only the start of Tal's journey. And in the next episode, Tal describes how he further refined his visualization approach for a rematch at the 1994 Winter Games in Lillehammer. Top bobsleigh drivers do three, four hundred runs a year. But I have made up the gap by getting into a state of deep mental relaxation and visualizing bobsleigh runs again and again and again to get up to my 400 runs a season. 80% of them were between my ears. How did he accomplish this? And are there ways to apply this practice in marketing? All this and more next time on Reach.